Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. With Medieval Church History, I'm Teresa Holman, and with me is Father Michael Witt. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Teresa. We are going to talk about a pretty well-known person today, but um, one I think we all could continue to learn and study. And yeah. that would be Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, yeah. It's, we've been waiting for this. <laughs> you know, yes, you think we about have. It. We've been working up to him for yeah, a while. I mean, uh, a lot of medieval history is oh. pretty rough and rugged, and uh, and this is one of the stars. And, uh, and you know, and he, and again, he would be the first to admit that he is standing on the shoulders of many great men and women who have come before him, and and of course his own mentor. Um, Saint Albert Albertus Magnus is, uh, is is that is that one that he's definitely standing on his shoulders. So uh, let's just jump in. Um, I've got a wonderful little quote from David Knowles in his book, The Evolution of Medieval Thought, in which he assesses uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas. He says this. He says Thomas Aquinas has been hailed by common consent in the modern world as the prince of scholastics, not only as the Dr. Angelicus, but also as he was acclaimed soon after his death, the Dr. Communis, to Thomas of pure blood, as to many others besides. He appears as the authentic voice of reason, interpreting and defending tradition, as the greatest medieval representative of the philosophical perennis the way of thinking that is ever ancient and ever new. Now, unfortunately, you know, uh, Knowles wrote this some years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we haven't improved on that. <laughs> uh, we've, we've tended to forget, uh, once again, uh, Thomas, as people do from time to time. But uh, this is an opportunity, then, to reacquaint ourselves with uh, this incredible mind, this incredible man. What a great synthesizer of, of thought and, um, and a great light. So we're going to look at his life, at his education, and then at his gift to the world. Okay. Okay. Thomas was born in the kingdom of Naples in mm. 1226, and he was born of noble blood. His father was the Count of Aquino. As, as a result, we get then the word Aquinas from that. Uh, his mother also was a noble. She was the Countess of Taino. And um, they were, as a result, uh, related to the imperial family in, in Germany, as well as the royal families of France, Aragon, and Castile. So they're they're a well, uh, well related group of people. <laughs> uh, he had a private tutor uh, from the very beginning. This was uh, Peter of Ireland, and uh, with his his private tutor, he studied then the Trivium. Now later on, when he was in his late teens, he uh, traveled to Naples and had the opportunity to come across a Dominican preacher. Uh, This was uh, John of St. Julian. And he was so taken 
with the preaching of this man that Thomas determined that he would join the uh, Dominicans himself. Um, he eventually did, after, but he waited four years. Uh, he went to the University of Naples and, uh, and studied there, and only at the age of 19 did he make the determination that he would uh, join the Dominicans. Um, a couple of interesting points here. The University of Naples is a secular university. It's probably about the only one, or very few. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them were founded, most of the great medieval universities were founded by bishops in various dioceses or by the Pope. Uh, in this case, uh, this was founded by the Emperor Frederick II. The University of Naples was. So anyway, he studies there. And uh, at the age of 19, then decides to join the Dominicans as he had been wanting to do for some years. However, he was prevented from doing that because um, he was kidnapped by his own brother, hmm? uh, Rinaldo. Rinaldo had, had served um, as, uh, as a page at the, count, uh, at the court of uh, Frederick II. And and so now he and another brother, Amo, um, will um, will kidnap Thomas and hold him in a castle so that he couldn't join the Dominicans. Um, Amo is an interesting fellow too. He was one of those who accompanied Frederick II on his quote-unquote crusade. Oh, okay. You, you remember mm -hmm. that? And in fact, uh, when he was on the island of Cyprus, he was event he himself. This is Amo was uh, was captured, and eventually the family would have to buy a ram the ransom and ransom him back in order to free him. So these these two brothers uh, are not unfamiliar with circles, you know, important mm -hmm. circles. And so they went ahead and um, uh, they captured him. Um, they were doing this at the behest of their mother, at the mother of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, her name is Theodora. And, uh, and so anyway, they take him off to a castle, which is one of the castles owned by the, by the family. Um, the, the name of the castle is Monte San Giovanni. And there he's held for an entire year. And it is not necessarily a, a happy moment, as you can well imagine. Um, Thomas is, uh, is big. You know, he's, he's nicknamed the Ox. Mm -hmm. And par part of the reason for that is that he is, he is a very big young man as well as very strong. And uh, toward the end of his life, I mean, he died a young man. He died at 49. Someone considers that old, but I, I consider that pretty young. Yeah. And um, he, uh, it, it, by the time he died, people were kind enough to call him corpulent. <laughs> but he was he was much more than that. Anyway, one of the uh, uh, one of the struggles happened to happened when uh, his brothers removed or attempted to remove his habit, and uh, there was evidently something of a fisticuffs between him and his brothers over that. Uh, there's another event, too, where his brothers decide, okay, fine, we're going to have to ruin this guy's vocation somehow or another. And so they hired a prostitute. Oh, I think I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she slips in, and, you know, and, and, uh, and Thomas 
responds by grabbing a great big firebrand and chases chases her out of the castle. And uh, <laughs> you know, so it it has not what she was expecting, I'm sure. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and not what the brothers expected either. Right. Uh, you know, they, they're some rough and tumble uh, soldiers. They kind of expect uh, Thomas to succumb to this. Mm-hmm. Well, just the opposite. Uh, what happens instead is that later that evening, uh, he goes to bed praying for chastity. And, uh, and, it, and he says later on that he uh, had a dream in which two angels came to him and, and said to him in this dream, we gird thee with the girdle of perpetual virginity. Hmm. And uh, he himself will say that after that moment, he never again had any uh, sexual temptations throughout the remainder of his life. Eventually, Mom gave up. <laughs> she relented. Um, she uh, allowed for a new Dominican habit to be sent to Thomas. I, I think the other one was probably tattered. <laughs> Uh, and then she also allowed for books. And so um, he had then three books uh, given to him. One was, and remember that a book is a very big deal back then. Right. And, uh, and, and so he receives um, a Bible and also uh, uh, Aristotle's Metaphysics. <clears throat> and then also Peter Lombard's Sentences. Mm, Remember, okay. that's the follow-up mm-hmm. uh, from Abelard's Sekatnan. And, and so there he has um, these um, three books delivered to him, and he devours them. He just, he, you know. Well, while this is going on, <clears throat> um, there is the struggle that takes place between the papacy on the one hand and Emperor Frederick II on the other. Uh, th- these are very unhappy days, of course. Um, and his brother Amo joins on the papal side. Mm. Okay. And with that, um, at the Council of Leon, this is in 1245, uh, Frederick is deposed as emperor and also. Um, the other brother, Rinaldo, then joins the Pope's cause, too. However, Rinaldo is captured by the imperial forces in uh, 1246 and is executed. Mm. Now, in, in great grief, um, Thomas's mother realizes that she has to release her other youngest son, too. And so he's released from prison. He's allowed to go back to the Dominicans. And the first thing they did was, oh, uh, you know, they, they take him aside going, well, I hope you had a good time. You know, you weren't studying with us. And, and, all, and he's, well, anyway, they, they gave him the exam without having gone to school. And um, it turned out that he had completed the <laughs> Studium Generale on his own. Oh, my God. Without tutor, without help. All he had was three books. But he did the entire Studium Generale on his own. Um, with that, he had the opportunity to meet the Pope. Uh, this is Pope Innocent IV. He was so 
the Pope was so taken with this man that he declared that there should be no other interference with his vocation. He should be allowed to continue. And so with that, he was sent off to Paris to study. That's where he met Albert the Great. Oh, okay. Yeah. And when time came that Albert was then transferred uh, back to Germany, he took Thomas with him back to, to uh, Cologne to continue to study. Mm -hmm. That's where he got the nickname the Dumb Ox. Now, Ox because he was such a big guy, mm -hmm. and then Dumb, not because he was stupid, but because he was silent. Uh. This is somebody who thought a lot. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And he only spoke when it was important to speak. Otherwise, he was just taking everything in. And so uh, when he arrives then at Cologne, uh, he finishes his own, his own studies, and he uh, begins teaching then uh, at, as a, a bachelor at the University of Cologne. Um, that's where he was ordained. And in 1252, Thomas then was uh, sent back to Rome in order to, uh, to continue studying and to begin teaching at the University of Paris. And his uh, teaching assignment was to teach Peter Lombard's sentences. <laughs> okay. Now, which he taught himself. I'm sorry? <laughs> which he taught himself. Which he taught himself, yeah. And, and here's the brilliance behind this is that not only does he teach Peter Lombard's sentences, but he also builds a commentary for them. And this becomes an outline, which eventually is going to be a theological treatise, which we know today as the Summa Theologica. Mm -hmm. um, it, it happens that while he himself was finishing his studies for his doctorate, uh, there was a great conflict between um, the, the university on the one hand and the city on the other. This is a, a town versus gown kind of a thing. Uh, what had happened was that, that um, some city guards, you know, they didn't have police as such back then, but you had you know, military uh, guarding the city, uh, got into a brawl with some of the university students. Well, those things happen, don't mm -hmm. they? And... Uh, Evidently, the guards um, uh, took the gloves off, and they beat up three pretty badly, three of the students pretty badly, and they killed one. Ooh. And the university would uh, responded by closing its doors. The university was closed its doors. Uh, this is a huge event because what that does then is there's a lot of money involved in this, and we've already seen other universities literally close their doors and move to other places, mm -hmm. which uh, is, is a huge revenue loss for the city. The city. Mm -hmm. And so what they were trying to do was they were trying to force the city to bring up these guards on murder charges mm -hmm. and assault charges. And, of course, the city was responding by saying, well, you know, we're going to stonewall this. And so the only way the university could get away with forcing this into the courts was to be closed. Okay. However, the monks, both the Franciscans and the Dominicans, that were studying at the University of Paris, refused to go along with the boycott. They said, we don't have a dog in this fight. 
you know, you're talking about lay students over here, and we're, this is too busy, too important for us. We've got to get these guys go through and, and educated. And so what happens then is that the lay professors at the university now turn on the religious professors yeah. because they're not coming along with the boycott. And so the lay, while the lay professors are refusing to hold classes, the friars, both the Dominicans and the Franciscans, continue their own classes. Now, they're basically mostly teaching just their own students, but not entirely. Uh, there are some lay students who are on in those classes also, and so this becomes a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And the end result is that the, the tension between the friars on the one hand and the lay on the other, um, well, what happens is that when the strike is finally called off, the lay professors are still holding a grudge against the friars, and so they will not vote in favor of the advancement of any of the friar students. Oh. As a result, two primary students do not get their doctorates. Oh, my gosh. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas is one of us. And Bonaventure. Oh, no. Could you imagine? <laughs> well, they will get theirs. But sure. It, okay. In a, in a, yeah, in a bed. But um, on top of this, one of the lay professors writes terrible attacks on the friars, both the Franciscans and, and the Dominicans. Now, this is a man by the name of William of St. Omar. Now, to make things even worse for Thomas Aquinas, he, a student, takes on this professor and okay. writes a rebuttal back showing all of his errors in his argument. Uh -huh. This goes over like a lead balloon. Ultimately, the Pope, Alexander IV, will condemn William of, uh, for heresy in, in his errors and then turns around and orders the doctorates to be given uh, back to those who had been denied, specifically Thomas and, and Bonaventure. Guess what the university did? They simply refused. That was just going to say, okay. Yeah. And mm. so the Pope sent another letter, mm -hmm. and then another letter. In all, the Pope sent 11 letters to the University of Paris, ordering them to grant doctorates wow. to these uh, these monks. And again and again, they refused to do it. And finally, um, I guess somebody got to the attention of King Louis the Ninth, St. Louis. Oh, St. Louis, yeah. Who then went to the university and said, you do this. And with the combined influence of the Pope on the one hand and the, and the king on the other, eventually the university buckled and granted PhDs to... Aquinas and Bonaventure. Oh my gosh! <laughs> of all people that would need that much influence, that's really kind of funny. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I think that would have been a slam dunk to give the degrees, the degrees to those two. Well, all I can say is, you know, they they, they really oh, are the patron saints of graduate students. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all know those of us who have been through that mill know how how. <laughs> How really nerve-wracking it is in that last year or so before the granting of the degree. Playing it, that game? It is. It is. And boy, I mean, these are two that are just 
perfect examples of how university politics can just really get in the way of things. Mm. Well, now uh, Thomas has his Ph.D. Okay. Uh, he is now lecturing at the University of Paris. Um, at one point, he then also becomes something of a traveling lecture, and so he will deliver uh, classes in uh, Anani, in Rome, in Bologna, in Orvieto, in Viterbo, and, and in uh, Perugia. And also uh, near his own home, he'll, he'll come back to Naples and uh, give a series of, of lectures in, in Naples. Uh, there, um, he discovered that, um, that the Episcopal um, Cathedra was vacant at that time. There was no uh, Archbishop of Naples, and he came very close to being acclaimed by popular consent uh, to, uh, to be um, the Archbishop of Naples. He begged off at the last minute, he begged the people not to do this. He still had writing to do, mm -hmm. uh, which, which he was able to do. That's an interesting parallel also uh, because the same thing did happen, in fact, with uh, his mentor, Albert the Great. Mm -hmm. Albert the Great did become a bishop, and he, um, forgetting exactly how long he was bishop uh, in, in a German diocese, but only for a couple years, and then begged off and said, you know, I'm really not an administrator, and he was allowed to go back to teaching, mm -hmm. uh, which he did for the remainder of his life, so it was 15, 17 years. But uh, Thomas was able to avoid that just barely. He spent long hours in prayer and in ecstasy. Um, there are times in which he has called by the Dominicans to perform specific services for them, especially at chapters. And eventually the most important thing that he did from the Dominican point of view was to formulate the uh, Studium Generale for the Dominicans. He is so prolific that he had at his service several scribes at the same time. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? And, and, and by the time he died, practically every major university library all throughout Europe had his works. You know, uh, this is this is incredible considering you know what it the takes the time to, and what know, it takes to make a book to make a book mm -hmm. yeah and yet almost every uh, every library worth its salt had um, uh, had his books um, one of the earliest books to be printed you know we're all uh, familiar of course with the Gutenberg uh, Bible mm -hmm. but um, as early as 1467, one of the very earliest examples of printing takes place, and it takes place in Mainz, where Gutenberg also worked. But uh, a man by the name of Peter Schuscher was one of the first printers in, in the Western world, and he was printing um, the works of Thomas Aquinas even then. Now, besides... Uh, Theology, which of course we'll be talking quite a bit about, um, he is also famous for his poetry, uh, much of which has been uh, turned into chant. Uh, 
Um, mm-hmm. He's responsible for the Panje Lingua. Ah, beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Um, also wrote uh, Tantum Ergo and O Salutaris Ostia. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they, of course, they are. They are absolutely beautiful pieces. What's some of the most beautiful music in the world. Yeah. Um, stepping away from the music itself and, and just the words, mm-hmm. yeah. they are so simple. Those words are so simple. They're so beautifully put together, and <laughs> they're so tragically translated into English. You know, um, just oh, I don't even like singing them in English. They sound so much better in Latin. Oh yeah, yeah, and and just in, in well anyway, they are. They're just absolutely beautiful. Um, in uh, the website New Advent mm-hmm. uh, points out that. Um, there are seven different um, corpusi, corpi, corpuses, <laughs> bodies of works, and and of course the one that we're most familiar with is uh, the Summa Theologica. Um, most of the works of um, of Saint Thomas Aquinas show a very wide range of sources and styles. And I think this is uh, significant for us, that this is a a man who is incredibly well-read and has pondered much in his relatively short life, Mm -hmm. much. Um, You're going to find, and and the styles themselves are rather eclectic. Uh, The the sources he draws from, it sort of reminds you an awful lot of our present Pope Benedict. Uh, who in his in his first uh, encyclical draws upon many sources that one would not expect mm-hmm. uh, in an encyclical. Uh, I think I've pointed out a number of times, uh, with a little bit of surprise, uh, that that his very first footnote comes from none other than Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, here you have another man who is uh, does the same thing. He quotes and draws from Plato, uh, Aristotle, of course. Also, Socrates, uh, Bathius, Peter Lombard, the scriptures all throughout. He, he knows the Old and New Testament backwards and forwards. He uh, knows the decrees of the consuls, not just the ecumenicals, but, but all. He knows the decrees of, um, of the popes. He is thoroughly drenched with patristics and especially St. Augustine you know so often we have this rather strange dichotomy that you're either a follower of Augustine or a follower of Thomas right well there's no contradiction there you know and then he also draws very heavily on Averroes so you know a Muslim so widely read very widely read um the Summa itself will cite, and I found this to be very fascinating, will cite 19 consuls, wow. 41 popes, 52 fathers of the church, both from the East and the West, and 46 philosophers and poets, and innumerable quotes from Scripture, and particularly St. Paul's letters. Again, we find ourselves often um, misunderstanding um, Thomas, and he he uses both inductive and deductive reasoning. 
so often we think that he's just a deductive reasoner, but he uses inductive as well as deductive reasoning. He analyzes and he synthesizes. So he's going to take passages, he's going to take concepts, and he's going to rip them apart. And then he's going to pull them back together again and show how they fit into a whole. This is a, a very unique mind to be able to do all of this. Um, and as I say, the most famous is uh, the Summa Theologica. But here are some of the other uh, great bodies of work that he, he does. Okay, um, There's another in which he... Um, it, it, it's known as the Questionis Disputate, and these are the disputed questions from his lectures. Oh. Okay. So, if, if if he were lecturing and a student were to ask questions, then what he does is he does a whole series on these questions themselves. Uh, for instance, the um, the soul. Which, which of course is a hot issue, especially mm -hmm. with De Anima right. uh, being published. Um, the the question of, of spiritual creatures, uh, non-physical, non-corporeal creatures, the nature of the incarnate Word. Uh, how is this? How does this happen? Uh, questions of charity, of fraternal correction, uh, the cardinal virtues, what is truth, and in all of these. Uh, in, in this particular document, the Questionis Disputate, um, he uses the sick et non approach, like Peter Lombard had done, uh, like Abelard had done, but he adds his conclusions to these, so that you're able to think through the uh, the issues, and he offers his own conclusions. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, one of the other important uh, works that he also writes is, uh, uh, pardon my Latin here, <laughs> De Unitate Intellectus Contra Averroalitas. Um, this is going to be then a, 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 a critique of Averroes. Mm -hmm. Where does Averroes go wrong? Especially defending the idea of the individualized personal and immortal soul. Okay. Uh, that, that, of course, is where uh, Aristotle takes off in a different direction and Averroes follows him in mm -hmm. that direction. And uh, so in this particular work, we're going to have Thomas Aquinas show the error of Averroes and, um, by extension, um, uh, Aristotle in not understanding the immortality of the soul, the, the uh, possibilities, the probabilities, the certainties that we have an immortal human soul and that is not only an immortal but it is also individualized and personal. That becomes important. Remember that some of the followers of Aristotle had argued, remember we were talking about this last time around, had argued for an individualized, personalized soul mm -hmm. that eventually is assumed into a world soul, a world spirit, and then we lose our individuality and our personality. Uh, Aquinas very uh, keenly argues that that is not the case, that in fact we live on in, into immortality. He also argues for free will, and with that, along with that, then is going to be responsibility. Yeah. Later on, he's going to do yet another um, 
set of, of works. And um, this is simply no, comes down to us known as Contra Gentiles. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual title of it is Summa de Veritates Catholicae Fidei Contra Gentiles. This is a summa of the of the true Catholic faith against the what he calls the Gentiles. What he means by the Gentiles is basically those Jewish and those Muslim scholars who had swallowed Aristotle whole hog. Uh, again, mainly Averroes, but we've dealt with some of the others, Maimonides um, and others who had um, found themselves trying to square off their faith, be it the Jewish faith or be it the Muslim faith, against uh, Aristotle and coming up short. Mm -hmm. And so he's in a sense going to pull them all along. <laughs> and, and what he does is he, he sets the philosophical underpinning uh, or the argument and that is going to be the complementarity of faith and reason. Remember we had seen uh, many other attempts at pulling together faith and reason. Right. We had the idea of the, the, uh, the two worlds, of the two doctrines, that, um, that Aristotle can be perfectly correct and truth can be found in Aristotle. And on the other hand, he can contradict Islam, and yet a Muslim can believe in both because of the concept of the two doctrines. Well, Arist uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas goes, no, that, no, come on. Let's pull these two together and see, in fact, that they do complement each other. The point is this, that you've got revealed truth, that's faith, and demonstrated truth, that's science. Now, all the way down to today, we find ourselves, especially Catholics, find themselves um, with that that balance of faith and reason. And so we don't find ourselves running in one direction or in another. Uh, now, there are, of course, Catholics who do go mm -hmm. in one direction or another, heading toward a supernaturalism on the one hand, or on the other hand, a modernism that tries to... Um, uh, it tries to water down the doctrines in order to fit in with whatever is current in, in, um, in science. But by and large, the, the Catholic tradition has always been one of seeing the complementarity of faith and reason. And it's probably Thomas, and undoubtedly, it is Thomas Aquinas that, that makes that uh, argument most clear. Even in the First Vatican uh, Council, in, uh, in 1869, 1870, you have the, uh, the document uh, Dei Filios in which again, extensively you have St. Thomas Aquinas quoted. And the, the idea behind that is to balance that, uh, that, uh, that faith and reason. And as we went into the age of science, we were able to do that, the Catholic theologian, the Catholic thinker is able to do that with confidence. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's an old story about um, some in the Christian faith, some of our, our brothers and sisters in certain Protestant denominations that uh, believe more and more in less and less. Mm -hmm. you know, as, as, as science whittled away at, uh, at the phenomena around us that they held more and more to what they believed and they just shouted louder and sang louder and in order to keep um, science out. Well, that's not a, a Catholic approach at all.
There's another um, work also that he um, produces. It, it's known as the Obsculum Contra Erones Graecorum, and uh, this is a um, this is a treatise especially dealing with the differences that we have between ourselves and the Greek Orthodox. Oh, and so he will. Uh, he will describe the filioque controversy in such a way that it had not been done before. Quite honestly, you know, going back to the uh, early 800s, we had that separation. Well, it's actually older than that, uh, between the East and the West over the whole question of the procession of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and that's, that's uh, solidified in, in the Nicene Creed as it's pronounced in the West. Uh, in the East, of course, they don't speak of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, but rather just from the Father, uh, that filioque and, and the Son. And, and Thomas studies that and produces that um, and makes that argument for the West more clearly than anyone else I've ever come across. And then also the same thing concerning purgatory, uh, a very clear description of what that, what that is. So in, in all of um, this, then, you have um, a Thomas. And like I say, we'll talk about the Summa Theologica next time around. Uh, but you see that his work, even if he had never written the Summa, mm -hmm. uh, his work still would be prodigious. Yes. You know. There's a great story. Uh, in 1269, he was at a banquet. Uh, it was a royal banquet. And he was the honored guest of none other than St. Louis. Uh, King Louis IX of France is sitting there. And, um, well, he was being the big dumb ox, <laughs> not saying anything. And Louis, from what we know of the story, was trying to engage him in conversation. And uh, Thomas was not paying any attention to the king. You know, this is the guy that helped him get his doctorate, you know. And, and there was not a word exchanged. And it was obvious that Thomas was absolutely involved in thought. You know, everyone uh, else is having a good old time, and, and he is just... He's solving you know. something. Yeah. And at the time, he was in the process of writing a summa against, the, uh, against Manichaeism. Okay. Now, remember that this was still a big deal. You had the Cathars and the Albigensians and the Waldensians all running around. And so he had, that was what on, was on his mind, is some way in which he could explain this. Well, all of a sudden, in the middle of this banquet, he takes his hand and he bangs it. Boom! On the table, and he jumps up and he says, "That settles the Manichees." He had come up with he the answer. It out. And uh, so he turns around and he hollers out to one of his scribes, "You know, come here! Hurry up! Hurry up! Bring your paper!" And, and his scribe wasn't invited to the dinner. Oh, no. And everyone's in a panic. And Saint Louis hollers out to his scribe and says, "Get over here!" <laughs> and they go off to a corner. And, uh, and 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 Thomas begins to dictate, dictate to, the to the scribe, you know, and writing as fast as he can to try to keep up with. Uh, uh, and and that was it, that was it. They never saw him again for the rest of the evening. <laughs>
Well, you all say I was there when. Yeah, really, yeah. You know, and I bet you any money that was St. Louis's uh, reaction. <laughs> you know, I, I can't help but think this is the man I'm talking about, Louis the Ninth, who did his uh, his his meditation, his his mental prayer in um, in, in that an incredible um, Chappelle. Yeah, Saint Chappelle, and 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 you know, having been there this past summer and just experiencing that incredible light coming through those windows uh there was a different light at that banquet that night <laughs> yes. and i i can only imagine that he really appreciated as you say being there when that <laughs> happened well by uh, 1272 thomas moved then to naples uh, he was assigned by the dominicans there to establish the uh studium generale and uh, much of the summa had already been completed. He spent Lent of uh, 1273 uh, teaching and preaching in the uh, uh, in in the uh, the church there at Naples, at the Cathedral of Naples. Delivered 59 sermons, 59 sermons, and it was standing room only. Mm -hmm. Uh, they st it must have been an incredible experience to see him up there preaching. And the, the crowd that was in that cathedral was made up of commoners as well as PhDs. Mm -hmm. And the neat thing is everybody understood him. He, he preached very plainly, very clearly, so everyone could understand. On Palm Sunday, in the middle of Mass, uh, he experienced several minutes of a rapture. And uh, it, it said that um, that he spent a night in prayer in, in the chapel, and uh, one of the sacristan for that that particular chapel. Uh, I guess you know it's one of these deals that you know how often do you are you in the presence of such a, an awesome person. Anyway, uh, the story goes that the chap that the sacristan hid in the chapel. Just to be in the same room with this guy, and uh, and according to that sacristan, in the middle of of that meditation, he saw Thomas Aquinas levitate. And all I can say is that is a prodigious task for a bunch of angels in order to get this guy up <laughs> off the ground. You know, <laughs> in in the winter of 1273, he had more um, ecstasy experiences. On December 6th, he called in his scribe, who was also acting as his secretary, and said that he would write no more. And uh, this is that famous quote in which he says, All that I have written seems like straw to me. For the next several weeks, he did not speak. He did not teach. He was mute. Uh, again, in ecstasy you know um having these incredible experiences in may of um of twelve seventy four he received a call from uh, Pope Gregory the tenth um a letter saying that he was to report to the French city of Lyon that a uh, council was to be held there and that he should bring with him the uh his work contra erones Grecorum, 
because that was going to be one of the important issues was to find a way to reconcile the Byzantine Church and the Western Church through a theological reasoning. And so, obedient to the Pope, he left and made his way toward Lyon. Did not make it. He got as far as Fossanova in Italy. And there he was, I guess not paying attention, but he ran into a tree. He was on a horse, and it was a low-lying branch, and he got whopped upside the head with this tree. And he was then taken, he had a niece that was nearby, and he was taken to her place, and then from there was transferred to a Cistercian monastery. This is the monastery at Fossanova. He was conscious and able to make a confession and receive the Blessed Sacrament, Viaticum, and then quietly passed away. Wow. What a life. <laughs> what can you say after that? That What a life is right. Yeah. What a gift we were given. Not even 50 years old. Yeah. You know? But uh, yeah, yeah, just made uh, absolute use of everything that had been given him, and then uh, created such a a wonder uh, in in all of those works, in all of those poems, and then certainly in the Summa itself. Mm-hmm. You know. And I encourage people if they've never read the Summa. Of course, I've never read the whole Summa, but I have picked up the Summa on different occasions and and read it, and it is easy to read. It is. It's yeah. surprising because you expect it to be. Yeah. Difficult, but like you said, he was able to speak to philosophers and and us common people, and uh, you yeah. can see that when you when you pick up the Summa. Yeah. And it's it's the size, <laughs> you know, it's like an encyclopedia. But you know, take any, don't read the whole thing. No, well, <laughs> find topics that interest you. Right. You know, we think also in terms of just the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the number of times that the Summa is. Uh, is is quoted and mm-hmm. is referenced, um, mm-hmm. is conferred with uh, in 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 the footnotes. Uh, you know, it, it's just so it's it's there. It is so big. I can only thank God for a mind so great. Yes, yes. And someone to have used it properly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Father. Shall we close with a prayer? Let's do. Blessing. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.